0: Welcome back to Everyday Disciples, the show where we strive to follow Jesus wherever we are. I'm Adam, one of the producers and editors of this podcast, and I am grateful for you choosing to spend your time and attention here. In today's episode, we study and reflect the ancient discipline of fasting. We'll begin with a roundtable discussion of the practice and heart of the practice of fasting with Aiden, Pastor Matt, and CJ. Then Pastor Matthew, Pastor Rob, and myself reflect on what Jesus teaches about fasting in the Sermon on the Mount. Our final segment will explore the worldview of Gnosticism and its prevalence in modern thought and culture. Again, thank you for listening. We pray you are blessed.
1: Well, welcome to another edition of Everyday Disciples. And we're here today with Aiden Hunt and CJ Jaluso here to talk a little bit about a spiritual practice that uh, might not be the most popular one uh, around us these days uh, the practice of fasting. And uh, Aiden, you're one of our local fasting. Experts around here, tell us maybe a little bit about what fasting is.
2: So fasting is just giving up food for a period of time in order to focus more on God. Um, I know that a lot of people will say, "Oh, I'm fasting like from social media," or "I'm fasting from like television," or "I'm fasting from like carbohydrates" or something like that. And while that's that's all well and good, and there are good things in I would encourage that. That would be more in the camp of abstinence. You're abstaining from those things. Um, fasting in the biblical sense is more more to do with just the actual like practice of not eating food. Um, you can still drink water. You can still um, you know drink as much water as you can probably to like satiate a little bit of that uh, hunger. Um, but the purpose of fasting is to kind of create in yourself that sense of hunger we get when we haven't eaten for a while. Um, and instead of satiating that hunger with food, but instead seeking uh, more of a fulfillment from God, um, and having that hunger of, for him and for his word be the thing that fills you up instead of food.
3: So where do we find examples of this in Scripture?
2: Well, I think it's
1: interesting that the only place in, in ancient Israel's practice where, uh, um, where fasting was prescribed is for the Day of Atonement. It's the only time that it comes up in the Pentateuch uh, is th- that was prescribed by the Old Testament law to fast um, for that day uh, because of the significance, the importance of that day in ancient Israel's life. Now, later on in the Old Testament, then fasting pops up, um, kind of prescribed by the kings, by the priests, by the prophets, uh, in association with uh, kind of... Trials that Israel was going through at the time. So we're gonna we're coming up against an enemy here. We're going to fast and we're going to pray. Uh, David, when he uh, was caught in adultery and his child's life, you know, was in danger, uh, he fasted and prayed during that time. Um, so we see kind of some of that stuff going on in the Old Testament, um, and then it pops up again in the New Testament. It, well, I should say it it did kind of grow. Between the testaments, in that time uh, after the Old Testament, before the New Testament, when there was sort of this Jewish uh, ascetic movement, where it was you had all these like uh, monks who would kind of go into isolation, really deprive themselves of everything, um, including food. And it really kind of grew there. And uh, in the New Testament, we see fasting pop up a little bit, but we see it. Kind of in a little different way. So, like, there's an episode with Jesus and his disciples, where the Pharisees come and they want to know, well, how come Jesus and his disciples, or Jesus's disciples, aren't fasting? Everybody else is. Uh, why aren't the disciples fasting? And and Jesus, um, let me find it here. He uh, he doesn't he doesn't respond to them kind of the way that you would expect him to
3: respond. Um, so it seems like, from what you're saying a lot in the Old Testament, fasting was more um, drawing near to God when they needed guidance or out of a sense of uncleanliness?
1: It was, it was usually associated with some sort of repentance, uh, some sort of a penitence uh, in the hearts and the lives of the people as they
2: uh, practiced fasting. Well, I think it's important to remember the, the purpose of fasting— like Matthew pointed out for the Old Testament and just the, the context of, you know, the ancient Israelites, you know, they did it as a as an act of repentance or penitence. And that's kind of how, how that's how it was supposed to be treated. But then when we see in, in the in the Gospels, when Jesus is on the scene and the Pharisees are very quick to to point out to Jesus, and says, yeah, why aren't you? It's become like a legalistic thing. People are fasting for the sake of either appearance or because it it's kind of lost its meaning, but it still has its place. And I think what Jesus does is kind of refocus and recenter what is the purpose of fasting. The best place we see him do that is really when he is in the wilderness after his baptism in Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days, fasting and being tempted by the devil. And it's, it's in that space of, you know, hunger and of um, you know, starvation. That Jesus is then put at his most vulnerable space and is being tempted by the devil, and yet he still rejects every single advance Satan tries to make on him. Um, and we wouldn't really think of it that way. We'd think of fasting, and when you're at your hu- most hungry, you know, hang hangry is a very real uh, thing. I we think we feel nowadays. Like if you haven't eaten in a little bit, you're a little more on edge, you're a little more like irritable. And Jesus has eaten him for 40 days, and yet his focus is so clearly set on God that there there is no chance he's going to be tempted by anything that Satan tries to to give to him. And so while we think fasting could maybe put us in a place of vulnerability, really, I think fasting is a way to seek that strength from God and to really focus more on his power and his strength than your own. And you're really relying on him, and you're praying— in your fasting, not just with your with your head and with your mind, but with your body, like with your stomach. It really is an entirely bodily uh, prayer that we do do with, you know, rejecting the, the thing that we find is a, a very basic need for human beings. We need food to survive. And when we fast, we're still even saying no to that in favor of drawing our power
3: from the Lord. And even fasting looks different today um, because— Just even 50, 70 years ago, people would prepare meals all day long, um, and now we can just run through a drive-thru, so it's just so much easier um, to get food nowadays, so I feel like in the past, you'd have to be so much more intentional about fasting. You couldn't just, oops, uh, I went through a drive-thru when I should have been fasting, or oops, I uh, grabbed a granola bar, I know that. It's just so much easier to get that food, and, and uh, I almost think that I don't think that it takes more discipline, but it's it's different. It's different than I don't. Know. I I think
2: I I would. I don't know if it takes more discipline, but you know nowadays we we have su- especially in the United States and in Western civilization we have such a fascinating relationship with food um you know being a foodie is the, you a know, very <laughs> cool thing to be like you try these cool restaurants and you eat all these nice places or you're eating these like divey like hole in the hole in the wall places um because the food there's so good and like I, and like all for, you know reveling and enjoying god's creation and the things that people have made with know god's provisions and i'm i mean i love a good meal i'm all for feasting i think there's a really important part of life is enjoying creation and and food's good way to do that um but to inhibit ourselves or to you know reject our fleshes or our bodies like will like desire for something like food is almost unheard of nowadays because it has become so ingrained of like our identity. Like we are like what we eat kind of a lot of the time. Um, and so to kind of reject our, our, our flesh's desires is really a saying like I am going to starve my flesh and feed my spirit, feed the spirit of God in me. Um, and if you look the temptation in the garden and Jesus's temptation in the wilderness, both had to do with food. I don't know if that's random, but I don't think it is. I think that food is something that yeah, human beings like. Like I said, we need it. Like it's a very integral part of our life. But what fasting does is still says to ourselves and to everybody around us, like this is a basic human need. I'm still putting it below my need for God.
1: In some ways, you know, fasting it, it's one of those complicated things because it uh, it is that picture of. Uh, denying ourselves, you know, Jesus talks about taking up your cross. The life of a Christian is a life of, um, what's the word that I want to use there? Um, shoot. Well, it, no, it's not a life of asceticism. I think that's an extreme and that's too far. Um, the life of a Christian doesn't need to be one of we we have to you know live that monkish life where we you know. Don't have any contact with the outside world. We, you know, beat ourselves up, basically punish ourselves, which is what asceticism is really getting after. Um, but the the life of a Christian is a life of, uh, to an extent, denying ourselves uh, in in order to better follow Jesus. And that doesn't mean we have to give up everything, um, and it doesn't mean that just simply by fasting we automatically are. Better at following Jesus for that. Um, it, it is the the practice. Fasting from a, a scriptural perspective is giving up food so that we can replace it with something else, like spending more time in prayer, spending more time in God's Word. Giving up food just for the sake of giving up food is not necessarily a spiritual practice. Okay, now I want to jump back to what I had said earlier, which now I can't remember how I got into it. <clears throat> So you may have to you may have to edit some of this stuff around, and if we got if if in the meantime we got to come back and like re-record a phrase to make this work, I, we can do that. So I was talking about um, the episode with Jesus and his disciples, where the Pharisees come, and you know John's disciples are fasting, but your disciples don't fast. Why? Uh, and there's, you know, kind of putting them at odds to one another there. And I think Jesus kind of, in his response, he kind of opens the door, I think, for either uh, expression to be appropriate, depending on the needs of the heart there. Uh, It's, both of them are justifiable in their different aims. And so he says, like, the disciples are here with me. It's, It's as if the the, the wedding party is around the bridegroom at the day of the wedding. We're not fasting during that time. We're celebrating. This is, I'm here. This is a time for celebration. Uh, you know, John's disciples are fasting because they're kind of aiming towards uh, this, this repair of the old order of Judaism that has fallen apart. And so both of them have a purpose. Both of them have an aim. And Jesus doesn't necessarily say one's better than the other. He just says this is where it is. Um, and I love too in Jesus teaching on fasting, that he really, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, um, he really makes the point that when you fast, don't contort your face, don't, uh, you know, wear ratty clothes or whatever. like don't don't highlight the fact that you're fasting. Only God should know that. It's between you and God. This is a spiritual thing. So that's kind of the attitude we have as
3: Christians towards this spiritual practice. Even along the lines he kinda said go the extra mile and put oil on your face so you don't look like you're fasting. You want to look better. Look
1: look like you're, you know, having a great day, you're not hungry at all. And
2: only God needs to know that. I think we see another interesting kind of call to fasting in either Matthew seventeen or in Mark nine. Right after the transfiguration, Jesus and his three of his disciples come down from the mountain. And there are disciples who are trying to cast out a demon from a boy when they get down, and they can't do it. And so Jesus rebukes the spirit, and his disciples say, why why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus replies, this kind can only come out by prayer. And some manuscripts say this can come out only by prayer and fasting. Um, And I think that comes into a really critical part of the practice of fasting is that you can pray without fasting. You don't need to fast in order to pray. Like that's a, you know, something that we should practice daily, um, regularly. is the practice of prayer. Um, so you can pray without fasting, but you cannot fast without prayer. If you are fasting but you aren't being intentionally prayerful, you're just kind of starving yourself. Um, in fasting, we aren't trying to practice self control necessarily. We're trying to seek closeness to God by praying with our bodies, and so. In the practice of, of fasting, you, it's it's pretty integral. Like prayer accompanies what we're doing. Um, if we really think of fasting as like a prayer with our bodies, then prayers with our minds, with our words are also very important for it. Um, so, so we pray with our words and our bodies in order to seek a deeper dependence um, with God, with how we speak with him and give our time and attention to him. And I see... A, a great instance of this is in Matthew 4.4, 4, Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God.
3: And I think you even see that into the way that God built our bodies. Because um, the more that you're fasted, the less energy that's used for your metabolism and digestion. Um, and it pretty much all is directed straight into your cognitive function. A lot of times in a fasted state, um, people have the better ability to focus. It sounds counterintuitive, but um, I mean, you're starting to see that with a lot of studies now. And I think if you add Jesus into it and God into it, that it's you're kind of making your spirit un- unstoppable um, in through Christ. Like it's a way to draw near. Um, And like Pastor Matt said, deny yourself. Um, You think of starving as in... Like when you think of not eating, you think of starving. You think of being hangry. You think of um, just all of the struggles that go along with it. Um, But I think with fasting, like a lot of other things in life, the easier route honestly makes for a harder life. I know you just sit at home all day and don't get outside and exercise. I know 20 years down the road, you might have a hard time walking a mile. Um, and I think fasting kind of really, by, by being able to harness the tool of fasting, which God gave us, allows you to really deepen your relationship with him in ways that you can't really put into words. Um, it's more of like, you're not worried about eating. You're fully dependent on God. You're not necessarily even worried about drink at that point. You're fully dependent on God.
2: And I think one more reason we have um, for fasting is to stand in solidarity with the poor and with the hungry. Um, even in our own city of Grand Rapids, we have a large population of people experiencing houselessness. And it's not just downtown, but we even have neighbors who aren't always sure you know, where their next meal is going to come from or when. And when it's going to be. And I think while it seems pr- probably pretty shallow um, to, that, to act like skipping a couple meals is going to make a, a big difference. When we devote that time and energy that we would be eating to instead praying for those who are hungry um, or choosing to serve in that way, our heart then grows and breaks for them just like God's does. Um, and that leads us to, to love and to serve and devote our lives to loving them instead. I think the last part of what you just said there is is
1: probably the the biggest, most important piece is fasting in and of itself is fine. Uh, it's the it's the actions we do while we're fasting that make it significant for the life of a Christian. The prayer, the the being moved to act in some way, like you just said, serving the the poor, uh, serving the needy while we're fasting. That's what makes fasting significant in the life of a disciple Um, should we choose to do that it's not just the not eating that now makes me a better person
2: from the C.S. Lewis Institute um, Thomas Terrence has this really good excerpt on you know the reasons that we might fast today I just want to run through them real quick but we fast um, to subdue the flesh and humble ourselves before God to draw near to him We do it as part of a life of worship and devotion to God. We do it to express sorrow and repentance for our sins and ask God's help in breaking their power in our life. We do it to for power to resist demonic temptation and attack for the Holy Spirit's vision, guidance and empowerment and ministry to seek deliverance for the oppressed, for the revival of God's church, for protection of the nation in times of great difficulty or danger and for national repentance and mercy when God's judgment of sin is at hand. There are, that's a big laundry list of reasons why we can fast and what we can devote our time and our prayer and attention to while fasting. Are all of those great reasons, I think, that uh, you know, when we are driven or inspired to fast, these are the things that we can be mindful of and praying for and really seeking God's wisdom and discernment on.
1: So when it comes to fasting— uh, in our own lives uh, for somebody who maybe this is something they haven't done before or they've you know maybe heard a little bit about it, want to try that out? What kind of uh, advice would you guys give?
3: I would say don't necessarily jump into a three-day fast right away. Um, ease, ease into it. Um, if you're a person that has to eat in the morning, maybe eat your meal in the morning and that's it for the rest of the day. If you're someone who wakes up and doesn't really necessarily eat breakfast, maybe go the whole day without eating and wait till dinner to eat. Um, and just really use that time to be deliberate, be intentional about your actions. Where is your mind? Where is your heart? What are you doing? Um, I think those are fairly fairly good places to start.
1: Well, and I think that a good point that you just brought up there that maybe is worth mentioning, that um, when it comes to fasting, like from a biblical perspective— there's not necessarily a minimum time requirement. Uh, I mean, fasting can be almost, you know, the, the, the kind of trend these days is like intermittent fasting kind of thing. It can be something as simple as that of, you know, just a, a period of the day where I'm going to fast instead of it. Th- there's nothing magic about the 24 hour period or longer or
2: whatever. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. I love what CJ said. I think the, Just like a lot of other practices um, in following Jesus, start where you are at, not where you want to be. Um, So if you want to make fasting a weekly rhythm part of your life, that's wonderful. Don't act like you have to do a full 24-hour, 48-hour fast every single week. That probably, especially right away, probably wouldn't be a great idea. Um, If you can just do two meals a day, breakfast and lunch, or like lunch and dinner, just two meals during your day, um, and in that time, yeah, remember, be intentional, be very be mindful of how you're spending your time, of you know how you are devoting your attention, your time, your energy towards God, and how you can just more mindfully serve him, serve others, um and yeah, seek discernment and wisdom, um, I think. The practice of breaking your fast is also important term to, to do that. You will know um, that when you don't eat for a period of time, your stomach shrinks. And so that f- first meal after breaking a fast is usually a much smaller than you anticipate. Usually you're really hungry and you're like, I'm going to feast. And then you get like halfway through, you're like, I cannot eat anymore because your stomach has shrunk quite a bit. Um, so when you do, I mean, yeah, be th- like practice a lot of thankfulness. First of all, like that meal that you have, you um i think are more mindful of knowing your thankfulness for it um yeah blessing it and giving thanks to god for the hands that prepared it or for the farmers that grew it and picked it uh, for the produce people at the grocery store who put it perfectly in a pyramid for you to to pick up on your way and throw in your cart um that I think it, it does kind of gear you more towards a, uh, a spirit of thankfulness um, that f- when you break your fast, um, be very careful. I think if you're doing like a an elongated or extended fast, I remember the first time I did, I think it was like a 48 hour, or maybe a little longer fast. And I like took a, like a bite of a sandwich and I thought my whole body was going to like combust. I was, <laughs> I was in so much pain. Um, but, I mean, I've, I was fine. I ended up okay. And so, yeah, just, like, be be mindful of, like, what you're putting in your body afterwards, like, what your body's craving, like, what kind of nourishment. You don't want to just immediately go, oh, okay, gallon tub of ice cream right down the hatch. Like, that's probably going to mess you up a lot more than it would not originally, uh, but if, especially if you haven't eaten anything. So, yeah, I know CJ and Adam probably, be like, greens <laughs> and veggies, like, very good stuff. Um, Yeah. Lower fat content, I would probably encourage, um, but something that's going to be nourishing. Something that's going to fulfill you, and that you can give a lot of thanks for.
1: Well, good suggestions, guys. Uh, good, good discussion on a topic that might not be familiar to lots of people out there today. Um, so, certainly want to encourage you if you're looking for a way to, uh, you know, grow in your your spiritual walk with Jesus. This uh, this might be something to check out for you. Well, for our next segment, I'm sitting here with Adam Vanderstelt and Pastor Rob, and for another one of our Sermon on the Mount uh, Bibles Only Bible study, where we're just kind of reading through the text and, and kicking around what uh, it means for us and digging into it a little bit. Uh, And it's appropriate that we're at the point of the Sermon on the Mount that we are, uh, because it ties in with our other segment today, and that's on fasting. And so just a couple of verses that we're going to look at uh, from Matthew 6, uh, 16 to 18. So Adam, you want to read that? We're going to do that. Uh, We've all got the ESV open in front of us, but uh, if you want to follow along, either listening or if you want to look it up uh, as you're listening along with us, that would be great.
0: So, uh, you know, we talked a little bit in the other segment about the practice of
1: fasting, but just uh, kind of looking at Jesus' words here about fasting and his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, maybe what, what stands out to you guys
4: right off the bat? Well, again, I think, again, we want to keep it in the context. And he's talking about the three, what, acts of piety of that day almsgiving, prayer, and, and fasting, and not doing them for a show or not letting them become only a show to other people. So that's the condemnation. And I, I, what fast uh, fascinated me is, you know, when you fast, obviously Jesus assumes you are fasting. So it's not, uh, it, it is a practice, and I know it's fa- fallen out of what cultural favor, but uh, I think you're going to be talking about how to encourage fasting, right? And the benefits of it.
0: It's interesting. I think, again, in the context, it's it's a. Um, this is a character, a Christian character building thing, and the the way that it develops character is not um, the thing that you're doing, but how you do the thing. Um, and so there's a lot of lot of instruction on um, not necessarily how specifically to to fast, but um, the way in which you um, present yourself. Um, While you do it, the heart behind it, yeah. While you're doing it, yeah. Yeah.
1: What's the the motivation behind it? Mm -hmm. I I appreciate, and we brought this up in the other uh, segment already, but just that if you're following what Jesus says here, if you are fasting, nobody should know. Right. It's not a this isn't for public show. This is a you and God thing Um, like like, you know, not every aspect. American Christianity likes to very much lean into that. It's just me and God. My faith is a very private thing. Um, That's not entirely what Jesus is driving at here. But certainly some of those practices are a not a not a show. It's not about us, um, but it is our relationship with God um, apart from that big demonstration.
4: And it's it's just so how twisted human nature is that we can twist any even righteous acts, as Jesus says in uh, six one, <laughs> you know, whether it's the giving to the needy, the prayer, or fasting. How you know our human nature can twist it into. Oh, I'm not. I'm not wanting God in this. I'm. I want. I want to impress other people, right?
1: I want to look spiritual.
4: Yeah, I want to look spiritual, yeah. or I want to feel spiritual,
1: right? Yeah, right. Which is such a big thing in our world today that that feeling, chasing after the feeling of being mm-hmm. spiritual, um, which you know, certainly for us as Lutherans, you know, we kind of—I uh, don't know about you, but I, I kind of you know immediately bristle at that when everybody somebody starts talking about like I don't I don't I don't feel God today. I was like, well. So, I mean, he he was there. Um, it's not about our feelings. It's right. a, it's about the the objective truth yeah. that we have in God's word and uh, His voice speaking to us, and, which
4: doesn't negate the feeling. but no, it no, and, puts and, it in its proper spot. Right,
1: and when when we do experience that that very you know spiritual fulfilling feeling in our faith, that's a great thing. Um, we just don't want to chase the feeling.
4: Yeah, and you know the, the looking gloomy i i wonder what the uh what the practice was that jesus was specifically speaking to here i mean there must have been some uh, practice that the pharisees had developed to say oh now we're now we're fasting so everybody know hey i'm i'm the fasting one today or on uh, this season or whatever they
1: were doing I appreciate your point too, of of the context of you know this little simple uh, paragraph, couple of verses on fasting, with these kind of three acts of piety from you know, the the two previous paragraphs in here. Um, so in in Jesus' day, and this is this is I don't know the history on this enough, and maybe you do um, know more than I do. But um, were there there were certainly other uh, what? pious acts that people were instructed to do at different points in time throughout the the, the history of God's people. Um, so so you, were these three ones that you think what what is Jesus saying by addressing these three? Maybe that's what I'm getting at. I think is, is these he, were the three is he saying three are, biggies. Are these the yeah, are these the three big ones? Are these the three that we're getting wrong right now and we need to like correct them back onto the right track? What what do you think was the situation that Jesus was trying to I've always
4: here. understood it, and I don't know why. That these were the three biggies. That these were, if you were really a, a disciple, uh, a follower of Jesus, you mm-hmm. gave to the poor, you prayed, and you um, you fasted. But what I what I don't know of an Old Testament command to fast.
1: Is in, there one in the other segment? I mean, it's, segment, there's
4: very many. Yeah, in
1: the other segment, we brought examples up I, of it, and now I don't have the reference in front of me to. To rattle it right off, but um, they the only place that it's commanded in the Old Testament is in association with the Day of Atonement, that there was a fast in preparation for that
4: day. And you must fast, are you? God said you yeah. you are to fast. Yeah, that was the mm-hmm. o- only
1: place that it was talked about at all in the Old Testament. Um, in the, or I shouldn't say that in the in the Pentateuch. That's the only place that it's mentioned. I think the prophets mentioned fasting. Well, times,
4: there's, so. I mean, for grieving, for right. repentance, it, situational for, fasting. Oh like the, yeah, the, the, I mean, there's the kings, of would, the kings
1: would call for it. We're, we're going into battle, everybody fast, you know, so that we can we can win this thing. But in the yeah in the Pentateuch in in those books, the only place it's commanded is in association with the Day of Atonement.
4: Mm-hmm. So it'd be. Maybe it will drive me to take the time to see just what was the practice back then. That obviously there was something going on—the disfiguring of their faces. I don't know what that is, but there, it was a visible outer show to say we're fasting,
1: sure. which certainly sounds like much of what Jesus was, um, you know, kind of railing against with the religious leaders of the day—that. They were going through all these empty motions. Their hearts were nowhere near where God wanted them to be, um, and so Jesus is kind of, you know, in the prayer one. It's uh, is it in the, the the prayer one where he talks about the you know like don't pr- you know make a big show on the street corner? Yep. Is that in this part here? Yep, it is. Um, it's five,
4: beginning at verse five. In the same formula, when yeah. you pray,
1: right? Don't do this. But it, you know, kind of these big showy things mm-hmm. that were just empty
0: inside. I just noticed too that at the, each, of, each of the end of these little paragraphs, it has the same sort of ending: Your Father, who is in secret, will reward you." So maybe these are these are certainly the big um, disciplines, or, um, you know, that they practice, but they're also probably the most vulnerable to um, like pride or um, yeah, just a big show. And I think Jesus is trying to say like maybe normalize these things in people's lives, you know, so that like when you do these things, you just should act like that's how a person who follows Jesus acts, and it's a normal thing and not a not a big show. And I do th- think people should know God does promise to reward,
4: and I'm not saying works righteousness here, but he just, you know, in his economy of things, he'll bless in his way. I'm not going to try to predict how that is, but he will bless and
1: keep you. Great guys, uh, great conversation on again, a uh, a practice that's probably not super popular these days, but uh, something that Jesus invites us to consider as we follow him. Well, welcome back to another segment of Everyday Disciples. I'm joined today with Aiden Hunt and Adam Vanderstelt here uh, to talk about a topic that is probably the farthest thing from most people's minds, but is really, I think, part of our our lives in more ways than we realize. And that's uh, the the idea of Gnosticism, uh, which is probably a word that not a whole lot of people are familiar with. Maybe if you um, if you're big fans of like the Da Vinci Code a few years back, you might be a little bit familiar with that term uh, when it got thrown around. But Gnosticism, in, in kind of a nutshell, is a was a religion that kind of came up alongside of Christianity, that uh, adopted some ideas from Christianity, kind of got intermingled with Christianity a little bit uh, back in kind of the first, second centuries, um, and... It it really has some had some lasting influence that most people don't think about. I know Adam, you said you had kind of done a little bit of a deep dive into kind of that history of just what Gnosticism
0: was. You want to maybe share a little bit of that with us? I can. Um, so Gnosticism in the first, second, and third centuries, um, as you said, was is proto-orthodox um, before. Uh, like the 4th century Catholic Church. It was intermingling uh, ideas of um, like Plato and Buddhism, um, but often uh, Judaism as well. Um, some There's some disagreement as to whether or not it's a, it's a religion or if it was just sort of um, a concept that grew next to um, Christianity. Um, what's really interesting is that historically, um, Gnosticism had a lot of mysticism involved in it as well. Um, and if you get into the deep uh, dive reading of it, there's a lot of different like creatures and um, otherworldly concepts. Um, Gnosticism can actually be defined in a couple different ways. Um, for the historical context, uh, it was very much a, like a philosophy of um the material world is bad, um, and that there's some hidden wisdom outside of ourselves um, that we're meant to discover. So instead of talking about um, sin and salvation, Gnosticism was actually more about uh, uh, illusion and enlightenment, um, which are terms that you uh, would probably hear in modern-day mysticism, um, New Age, the New Age movement, and um, of of course, like Buddhism. Um, So The historical um, concepts are are really compelling, Um, and I think they've been drawn into uh, now the uh, 21st century um, in some really uh, interesting ways. Um, Pastor Matthew, I know that you've uh, said um, uh, uh, that—who said that um, uh, Gnosticism is sort of the American modern religion? Yeah, there's a there's an author
1: um, Harold Bloom who wrote a book a, a number of years back, back in the '90s called The American Religion, and he argues that Gnosticism is really the American religion, and even that that Gnosticism has impacted every religion that has ever come to America, which I thought was a, a pretty bold statement that he makes there. Um, even even evangelical Christianity has been influenced by this philosophy of Gnosticism, which you know maybe we even kind of say that you mentioned there about uh, a big piece of Gnosticism is that kind of hidden knowledge, that special knowledge, uh, which is where the name Gnosticism comes from. Gnosis, the, the Greek word for knowledge, um, that's where that comes from. It's also that same word is where we get agnostic. So, you know, that we can't know anything about God, uh, a different philosophical uh, strain from Gnosticism but kind of related uh terminology there. Uh if, if you want to think of kind of some good if you want if you want to see a good picture of what Gnosticism is, the it shows up in American pop culture. Uh the best place that it shows up is the movie The Matrix. If you've ever seen that movie, it is it really is. I mean, like seriously, a Perfect picture of Gnosticism, because if you think about that movie, you have this uh, human beings being enslaved by beings who are not from this place, who have created this world that's really an illusion. So this physical world that is a prison for the humans who are in that world, um, they don't know that it's a prison except there's a few who have that special knowledge who know that this is... And then you have Neo, who is the one who has that like ultimate special knowledge that he can transcend that prison that he's in and escape that. Um, He is the the one who achieves enlightenment, which is kind of also one of those tenets of uh, Gnosticism there. Another great movie that also is Gnostic... The Truman Show. Great movie. Uh, kind of, have you ever watched The, the Truman Show? Aiden? I have not. Oh. You're,
2: you're calling me out really on the I'm, podcast for I'm being sorry. too young and well, not, it, not yeah. knowing good film. It, I it guess. did
1: come out when you were quite young. Yeah, what year was it come out? Oh, it was probably what, 98? Oh, yeah, I mean, year you I was were born, yeah. yeah <laughs> you were, um, and like pre um, reality TV stuff. So it was kind of really the first foray for a lot of folks into like that kind of reality TV, but he's in a world that's created for him filled with people who don't really love him. And it's a prison and he doesn't realize it's a prison. And then as he, as he starts to kind of pick up on that knowledge, when the, when the, uh, stage lights, you know, fall from the sky and he's like, you know, this, his world starts falling apart. He gets that wisdom and he, he finally escapes that world. Uh, another one, groundhog day. <laughs> Groundhog Day is a Gnostic movie because uh, it's repeat, 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 repeat. It's, it's you're stuck in this world that, is, that uh, you know, has been kind of created around him. And until he achieves that enlightenment, uh, he's trapped there which I just the other day came across a statistic. This is completely unrelated, but um, you might win at trivia one day if you uh, remember this, that somebody somebody added it all up. I think it was maybe even the director or the, the writer who said that um, Bill Murray's character spends 30 years in that day. Three decades trapped in Groundhog Day. So And, and until he achieves that enlightenment and can escape that existence there. Uh, even the movie like uh, Pocahontas, kind of a Gnostic movie. When you think about the way that she describes, um, you know, it, the, uh, every tree, every rock, everything around you is really a creature. It, it looks like a tree, but it has a spirit. Um, it's a, the, the world is kind of an illusion around you. Um, I'm sure there's lots of other movies too, but like all kind of boiling down to that idea that the world around us is really not what it seems. And it's really not important. What really matters is your mind. What matters is you know your heart. Um, and those are some of those ideas, I think, that get brought into even Christianity today, in our world today. Um, I think Gnosticism has really strong implications for uh, some of the th- cultural things that we're going through today. When you think of the transgender movement today... <clears throat> sorry... When you think of the transgender movement today, um, the way that that argument is often framed is my mind and my body don't match, so I need to make my body fit my mind because my mind is what's most important. The physical is unimportant, so let's let's change that. That's a
0: huge—that's that, Gnosticism playing out right there, Um in um in the first and second centuries, the those who were enlightened um, were regarded as androgynous. Oh, okay. They were regarded as angels. Yep. Neither uh, male, male or, female. or female. So, yeah. Centuries later, I think
1: that there's the That's, connection there. Yeah, it's playing out again, right before our eyes today. Um, as as uh, as Christians. And as a pastor, one of the places where I hear this come from Christians, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, Jesus-following Christians, uh, where I hear this come up the most is around death, around funerals and, and when, when somebody passes away. When when somebody dies, what what's one of the things you've heard people say at a funeral? Uh, he's free from his his
0: body that tortured yeah. him or from yeah, his like, sickness or, like yeah.
1: now it's better that that grandpa is away from his body because mm-hmm. the body was just slowing him down now from a christian perspective what do we believe about death and the body
2: we, we believe that if, as a human being made in the image of god you you don't just have a body you are a body um And that the Gnosticism rooted in that dualism of the spiritual is good, material is bad. Therefore, we think our bodies are bad things are just vessels that hold our good spirits, but the bodies in in themselves are bad. So who cares what we do to them? But that's just not true. Because if we believe our bodies are our temples of the Holy Spirit, if we believe the, the spirit of God dwells within us, in our bodies, they're not just, you know... What was it uh, like meat-filled skin sacks that carry us from room to room but right. they really are you know the way that we were made in the image of God and we we have that that image on us that our bodies are not just something to escape but they're something they are they are part of us just as much as as our spirit is like we are our bodies we don't just have a body right and it and
1: I mean it, it's a it's a fine line to walk at times because you know, there is a, an aspect of, especially if, if, if a loved one has been struggling for you know, decades with a, a debilitating um, condition that you've just kind of watched their body degrade over time, uh, there is an aspect of they're free from that struggle. They're free from that, that suffering right now, but they're not whole now. That's the important part to remember. Like, we're, death hits us so hard, it knocks the body and the soul apart. And, and that's a, a jarring thing to have happen to somebody. We're meant to be together, uh, body and soul. And that's what the hope is. The Christian hope is the resurrection of that body. That same body that we're going to cremate or that we're going to put in the ground is going to be put back with that soul for all eternity. This body that I have right now is not just going to be thrown away. It's going to be back again. Now, Paul and and the the New Testament kind of wrestles with what does that mean? What does that look like? We don't really know. Um, glorified in some sense, but this body is still going to be there. And so you know, just one of the you know kind of many ways that that pops up for us in in uh, Christianity in the church that we don't
2: even necessarily think about or realize when when we're saying that uh, around those. If times. we believe that the material world is flawed that the creator of that world must also be flawed. Um, and for Christians who believe in the God of scripture and Yahweh, we believe that the creator God made this world um, and that he cannot be of fault. Um, and, and that the material world, like our, our world is not inherently bad. The fact of the matter is everything is infected and affected by sin in our world. It doesn't mean that the material world was made incorrectly or made flawed, but the infection of sin has taken a toll on every part of our life from our bodies to our genetics to, you know, nature and to all of the things that we are seeing taking a toll on humanity and on creatures and on the environment and everything that's happening. It doesn't mean they were made incorrectly. It means that those things are all going to be restored one day by God. Um, the material is not bad. There is a current disease. There is an infection called sin that is affecting everything in the material world, but doesn't mean that the world itself is bad. Um, but just that the, the redemption and the redeeming story of the cross of the gospel is just that much better because it will all be restored one day by Jesus.
1: Part of the reason why we're having this conversation is just to kind of raise that awareness, Uh, First of all, that this is kind of more prevalent than we realize, and I don't think many people kind of even recognize uh, what Gnosticism is, let alone its effects uh, and and how it's influenced even Christianity today. Um, And and so part of that is just being aware of that. uh, And another reminder for me to be in the Scripture, to to know God's Word, because it's the story of God's Word, as as Aiden was just saying, of of how God is working in this world, uh, how God values the physical, uh, so much so that he's not just like saving us out of it, but he's saving creation and us. It's, it's a, it's a complete redemption, a complete restoration of his good creation. Uh, not that God screwed up, uh, but that we messed up and broke this world. And now God is going to put everything back together, ourselves included. And, uh, a reminder for me of how important it is to be in God's Word, to be around other Christians who are in God's Word, that we can uh, have that story internalized, so that we can we can kind of combat those errors that might pop up. So, yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, great conversation here uh, on a, a topic that is is on more people's minds, I think, than than they realize. Thanks for listening to Everyday Disciples. Everyday Disciples is part of the online ministry of St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Grand Rapids. We're striving to be followers of Jesus wherever we are, and we hope you'll join us on that journey. If you found this podcast helpful in your spiritual journey, we'd be honored if you would rate us and review us wherever you listen. It helps people find us and get the good news about Jesus out there to the world. If you've got questions or suggestions for things that you'd like to hear about on Everyday Disciples, let us know with an email to media at stmatthewgr.com.